welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. All over the world in the last 10 years, there's been a huge renaissance at the barbershop. Quite simply, barbering has become cool again. And there's been a return to the barbershop, that uniquely male space. I don't for one minute think that this is a trend that will return back to the unisex model that existed since the 70s. But like everything else, there are inevitably some people that have done it far better than others. My guest on today's podcast is a friend of mine, Maddie Conrad, who, amongst other things, is a barber and founder of Victory Barber and Brand, based in Victoria, the capital of British Columbia in Canada, which, if you haven't been there, is a stunningly beautiful part of the world. So in today's podcast, we talk about the heart and the passion that sits behind the Victory brand. We talk about what it takes to make a successful barbershop and why it's essential to control your culture. Maddie talks about how he's overcome the hurdles that exist in growing any business. He talks about when it's the right time to expand and what it really takes to produce a product line and loads more. Maddie Conrad is one of those people that is well worth listening to. And I'm sure that you won't be disappointed. There's a humility and an authenticity about him that is hard to find. And I think that that's one of the things that make him the success he's becoming and so rightly deserves. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Maddie Conrad. Hi, Anthony. It's great to see you. It's fantastic to see you here too, Maddie. I'm really looking forward to having this opportunity to talk with you and share your wisdom and ideas with our audience today. Yeah, it's honestly such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me to be on. I'm, I, uh, I'm excited to catch up with you. We are, in fact, uh, dear old friends. Exactly. And I think that gives me license to say certain things that maybe other people won't. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm not going to not do that. In fact, I'm going to start off like that. Now, I'm here for you know, it. I, I usually get people to introduce themselves, uh, but I'm going to jump in and I'm going to take that honor away from you. And then I'll get back to you to join the dots. I'm dying to speak. Good. Okay. So I first met Maddie, as he's just said, we're old friends. Uh, He sat in a class I was doing and I'm trying to figure out how long ago it must've been, but I'm thinking it was about 10 years ago. So about 2010 and it was in Toronto and he didn't look like he does now. He was clean shaven. He was dressed like a hairdresser. In fact, he probably looked a little bit more Tom Cruise than what he does at the moment. But <laughs> don't, don't take that as an insult, okay? But it, he was sat in the front row of this class I was doing, and I can really remember him to this day. And I don't remember, you know, a lot of people that have been sat in the front of my seminars over many years, but I can just remember him. I don't know why, but he was sat there and he was really focused. He was bright eyed and there was something about him that stood out. I had no idea what it was, but there was something about this guy in the front row that stood out. Now, you've got to remember that at this point in his journey, he didn't own a barbershop because it was at the very beginning of the barber renaissance. Remember, this is 2010. That's the year that Instagram, uh, first of all, started. He owned a salon at the time called Lab, which predominantly had a female clientele and it was... uh, 
It was in uh, Victoria, in British Columbia. And although I never visited it, it looked very cool. It had great marketing, great website. And uh, I remember looking at it and thinking, wow, there's you know, a lot going on here that, that was good. Just fantastic messaging. I always was inspired and impressed by the, the messaging and the marketing. But if we fast forward to today, he now has multiple barbershops. He has a product brand of his own. He's an in-demand platform educator. He's a great photographer. And he's coming up to 100,000 followers on Instagram. He's a fellow podcaster. He has an innate understanding of marketing like no one I've ever met. He is unfortunately handsome. And he's the poster boy of modern barbering. He's also a really nice guy and he pretends to be humble and either he is humble or that's another genius part of his marketing strategy, but whatever it is, it's working. So welcome to the podcast, my friend, Maddie Conrad. I feel like you're talking about somebody else when you say all this. I mean, I hear them and I go, yeah, okay, I did that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's factually accurate, but it feels, it, it's weird. It feels like someone else entirely. It, it's uh uh, it, on any given day, I may have been one or all of those things, but not every day. You, you definitely were. In fact, I've got the photos somewhere to prove it. So at some point, <laughs> the, time, Tom Cruise the, Tom, the Tom Cruise lookalikes coming out. So. Oh, <laughs> anyway. man. It's, you know, it's funny because I, I, I remember sitting in the front of your thing. You are probably one of the best educators I've ever seen. Um, you uh, very un unknowingly influenced the way that I teach um, because of the way I see you, I saw you present and the way that I was really engaged, not because, uh, you know, I naturally am an engaged individual, but because your presentation was so strong and I found it so captivating and just the right amount of humor and information and fun and the way you deliver. I took a lot of notes from you that day, not just on what you were talking about, but on how you presented it, because my career as an educator has skyrocketed in the last decade. And I've been now all around the world, even even on to. Uh, you know, stages in uh, Tokyo, Japan, in front of, you know, a thousand people doing a haircut. And you think that that's such a weird job, isn't it? I mean, it's such a weird thing to try and explain to an Uber driver. But the education yeah. aspect of things, um, I, I really learned from your class. Uh, and you know, one of the millions of things I learned from it is really a different skill set altogether. Educating and sharing and public speaking is such a different skill set than just being good as a barber, just being good as a hairstylist. And having the balance of those things, I thought was really, really important. So thank you for that class and for all of your books and everything I've learned from you over the last decade. Um, you were very, very helpful in, in um, me understanding how to scale and how to build a business and, uh, and how to do all of these things. So thanks. Off the hop, I want to say thank you before we get into the rest of the stuff. You've, you've been thank a big you. inspiration to a lot of people, myself included. Well, I'm really flattered by that. So thank you very much. It's uh, certainly something that you, you've taken and, and you've uh, flown with. So uh, let's jump in. Let's, let's start with, with uh, barbering. Why barbering? As I, as I said before, you, know, you, you owned Lab. And yes. uh, it was essentially a, a, a ladies' hairdressing salon that had, a, you know, a few cool guys would drop in on it. Um, and you, you know, had this successful salon, but you've reinvented who you are. So, so, so tell us all about that. Tell us about that story. What, what was it that made that transition when you woke up one day and, and thought, I'm going to open a barber's? 
You know, it was a crisis of um, identity a little bit. It was one of those things where I, I, um, I never really meant to get into hairdressing. I kind of stumbled into it by accident and uh, it just turns out that I was quite good at it. And so I, I just did it. I just did this job and I, I built salons. I, as you can say, my marketing and photography are, are hobbies of mine. I, I had a lot of fun employing all of those different skill sets that I had and it just kind of grew up underneath me. And, um, and it, it got to the point where I, I kind of started to realize that I didn't maybe enjoy it as much as I thought I did. I started looking at so many different facets of it, you know, the idea of like, okay, well, maybe going and doing platform work or maybe going and working with this company. I was always looking for a solution to the fact that I wasn't satisfied with what I was doing. Um, and I didn't find it that fulfilling. I mean, sorry, I just didn't. And, and uh, I was sitting at my grandfather's funeral uh, around this period. He died in 2009. And, uh, when I had sat there, uh, listening to people give the eulogy and, and talk about him, um, it, it left me with this heavy feeling of, uh, legacy, the idea of legacy. What is, what is the, the piece of the world that you want to impact? You know what I mean? My grandfather, he was a businessman, but he was very involved in his community and all these things. And so many people had wonderful things to say about him. My dad you know, read out his high school yearbook quote, which just said, I will never let anyone be more of a gentleman than I. And when I looked in the mirror, like you so, uh, you know, fortunately said at the very beginning of this is I looked more like a hairdresser than I do like a gentleman. And it was one of those things where I thought to myself, okay, well, what, what happened to that? What happened to those guys? What happened to that whole thing? And of course, because I was in the hair world, I was very focused on, you know, what, what, what are we in the hair world doing for this? You know, this idea of masculinity. This was during that period of like hyper masculinization where guys went overnight from being metrosexuals and fussy and high maintenance to wearing lots of plaid and growing beards and looking like lumberjacks, you know, that was part of that whole transitionary period of hyper masculinization. I was just looking for my role inside of it. And to me, I became fascinated with the idea of the barbershop. My grandfather never set foot in my hair salon, not once. <laughs> he was very proud of me, obviously, but that's not where he would come for a haircut. It just didn't occur to him that that would be a thing. And so that led me to being really fascinated with this idea of old barbershops. And it became this weird obsession. And, and it was like a real point of like nerdiness, like really deep nerdiness. It wasn't cool. It wasn't at the time barbering was still very like, old guys chained to a chair you know what i mean it, it wasn't like this cool renaissance had happened in barbering yet that the, the barber boom as most of us refer to it it was 2010 there was there was maybe four guys on the planet that were doing mm. kind of what we were trying to do and um and quite surprisingly most of us became friends because of our common like complete obsession with this weird nerdy old school barbering thing and i've i've learned through that process that that the thing that you are like unnaturally obsessed with, you know what I mean? It is, um, is actually part of your most authentic self. Like if you can't explain why you're so obsessed with this one thing, you're just like, I'm fascinated by world war two, for instance, I, I don't know what it is, but I love that period. Um, I've, I've fascinated with the history of it, the, the politics, the, the style, the fashion, everything about that period, I find fascinating and always have. And to the point where I've been, I'm, I'm a geek, I'm a geek about World War II. I go to all the museums, I read all the books, I see all the things. I'm just, I find it fascinating. And the things that we are so obsessed with that we're almost embarrassed to tell our friends that we like that much because they're going to think we're weird for liking something so much, mm -hmm. that's probably your most authentic self. And so 
barbering was part of that for me that just this history of barbering in that period i was so nerdy but i was collecting things i was reading all these books i was learning as much as i could about it and then it just kind of became really evident to me that like all of the things that i really liked about hairdressing the things I liked that I still liked. I mean, there's a lot of things I didn't like about it, quite frankly, like that, that carpal tunnel from blow drying with, you know, a million round brushes kind of thing that we had, or, you know, perms, I'm a little ADD. So coloring was really like frustrating for me because it just took so long. And, and all these things weren't um, my favorite thing, but the cutting part always was, I loved the cutting part. And it really tied itself into this idea of barbering. And what if we could do good haircuts for men again, rather than just fast haircuts for men? And, uh, and so this idea really evolved out of that. I was really inspired by some old barber shops and I picked up a couple of old chairs. And by the time I got my first old barber chair, I was completely hooked. I mean, forget it. It was just, I was hook, line and sinker at that point. And so we built Victory Barber and Brand in 2010 in the, uh, in the winter of 2010. And, okay. um, yeah, we've never looked back. Okay, so it must have even been before that that we that we met. If that's when I think built it. I think so we're it wasn't on the agenda. I think I met you in two thousand and nine or two thousand and eight. Yeah, it may have been. Pretty close. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, I I did forget to say to my audience that you also have an amazing voice and a great accent. So you know what's not to like. <laughs> you know the funny thing is over here I don't have an accent. Uh, you do, which I think is why you're so popular in America because they're like, oh, he sounds so intelligent with that accent, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to get some back. Um, okay, so, so w w was there a day, I mean, I saw um, on your Facebook feed, I think it was at the time, um, mm. the, basically the opening of Victory Barber and Brand, yeah. uh, carrying a moose head in the door. Uh, this, this enormous moose head that was being yeah. you know, taken out the back of your truck and oh, being brought gosh. into the shop. And, and I just remember looking at the pictures of the shop and mm -hmm. thinking, He's nailed it. He's absolutely nailed it. And I know you've done a lot of that yourself. So, so a yeah. lot of your marketing yeah. is, you know, I, I'm being genuinely serious here. You have this amazing intuition about marketing and developing a brand. You, I mean, to the point of like the name you've given it, Victory, mm -hmm. uh, Barbering and Brand. Um, mm -hmm. You're the face of the brand. I mean, you couldn't make you up. You know what I mean? Like if you were trying to make a product, you, you know, yeah. you're trying to design you, uh, sure. you know, the beard, the tattoos, the dog, the motorbikes, you know, uh, uh, the, the decor of victory, the uh, bespoke brands that you carry, the handyman stuff you do for your, um, you know, some of the videos that you make on Instagram, et cetera. Yeah. You know, the packaging of the products, the graphic design, the, the storytelling, everything you do really, is nailed, really nails it. And I, I'm curious – how much of, of you recognize and consciously understand that you are the brand? Almost, almost zero. Um, you know, the funny thing is, is like, I, it, it's, it's lovely to get those compliments and it feels great for people to, to recognize um, that I do that myself. But the thing is, it's not, it's not an, as intentional, I think, as people think. It is a function of authenticity. Authenticity isn't this like intentional yeah. thing that you try and paint onto something to make it look old. It's, it's actually just a, a reflection of who you are. And if you can figure that out and just trust your own instincts to go, this is what I like. This is what I think looks good. Or, or in some cases, for some of those things that you mentioned, this is what I'm capable of. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have any degrees in anything. I, I didn't even finish high school. 
You know, mm-hmm. I, I finished like halfway through grade 12. I was like, well, I don't think this is going to work for me. I didn't do mm-hmm. university. I haven't done any abject training in design or marketing or any of that stuff. It really is all just kind of intuitive. It's mm-hmm. this is what I like. This is the feel that I look for. I taught myself to do things like Photoshop and, um, you know, design stuff. I taught myself how to pack, how to design packaging. And uh, the funny thing is like the packaging for my products, it would look cooler if I was able to do it like something cooler. But I really just started with, this is kind of my skill level. This is what I'm capable of. And I've created something that I think looks relatively timeless. Oh, and, I think you do. Yeah, I, think, I think you have so, a great eye. Thanks. But, but all the other stuff, um, I think people talk about branding these days, like their idea of branding is to invent themselves into something marketable. Hmm. And I've never done that. I've just found that I've always just marketed who I am or what I am. Um, as much as my styles ebb and flow and change, I mean, you know, I, I like I said, when, when we met, I looked more like a hairstylist. That was a world I was immersed in. But as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more experience, I've kind of come to grow into my own style of who I am rather hmm. than trying to fit into something else. And the more I grew into that, the more I just really became myself wholeheartedly without reservation, without apology, I started to notice the impact that that had on not just our brand, but just the idea that other people seem to really be drawn to that. And, and I think it was really interesting because it was such a backwards way of looking at things from what we learn in high school, which is, you know, our, our, our social base, when we start learning how to interact with people, it's always about, well, you want to fit in, you know, you want to fit in so that everyone likes you. But, uh, you know, the kids back then that were extraordinary, exceptional, doing their own weird thing, they were never celebrated, you know, so we kind of got conditioned to to just fit into the masses and just fit into the herd. And so when I was, you know, knee deep in hairdressing and stuff and trying to find that thing that made me satisfied, I think I was always just kind of looking like I fit into that world. But as soon as I was free of that, as soon as I felt like, you know, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to go off and do this. I mean, when I told people I wanted to be a barber, when I met you, I was I was a global artist for a huge company and I was traveling around the world teaching hairdressing like on stages all around the world that is the top of the ladder for most people that is the peak of success in hairdressing industry and I stood up one day and I said you know I think I'm done with this I'm gonna go be a barber I mean I looked I sounded crazy to people at the time you know they looked and they're like are you mad Mm. but for me it just it felt like my truth in a weird way you know I know that sounds flaky but it felt like this thing that connected with me in a much deeper way and was more authentic to who I really am. And I got to be myself hundred percent of the time. I didn't, there was no group to fit into. I was yeah. carving my own path and that moose head surprisingly, like I, yeah, I remember that video cause I was, I was carrying this thing on my shoulder and it was like yeah, yeah. twice yeah. the size of me. Yeah, and um, the reason we picked that is because when I was thinking about how to design a shop that was us, that was very much us, it needed to speak to our Canadian-ness, you know what I mean? Because it was never meant to be a a vintage shop. It was never meant to be um, like this retro rock and roll chrome and checkered floors that that most vintage barbershops were. I always called it heritage, never vintage. And the reason for that is because heritage is a thing that is always evolving. It's always still moving with the times, but it pays homage to the past where vintage is stuck in the past. Yeah, And so... For us to create that and for me alongside of that to be to be growing into who I authentically am, it made it really easy to start to create a bit of a lens for how I saw the world and how I saw things and what I wanted to surround myself with that just made me happy. 
Mm, and okay. it was all these cool antiques and this idea of like all this old stuff. Um, that was very authentic to me. And that was yeah. very much my style. And I just found it really easy to live very like comfortably in that world, you know? And, and even as we started to, to build other shops, same thing. We just, we, we made, they all have a different, slightly different um, format, but the same vibe, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it, it just made it easy to be an authentic reflection of my own thing. It's not going to be everybody's thing. And I've seen lots of people try to replicate it after the fact, mm. and it's not who they are. It's not their personality. And so it, it just looks very facade and it looks very false. Yeah. And that's the yep. thing that I think is, is the real problem is that a lot of people that are trying to copy other people's thing, instead of trying to figure out what their own thing is, what unique they get to bring to things. Um, I, I think it's easy to look at other people that are successful with a thing, but you will never be successful doing their thing. You'll only be successful doing yours. Yep, exactly. No one can be you as good as you can, no matter who you are. Yeah. Well, they, what they so, say, they, you can copy the sauce or you can copy the recipe, but the sauce won't taste the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the first uh, shop, uh, mm. Victory, uh, mm. did it take off straight away? Oh, my God. It was terrifying. Um, it, the only thing that took off uh, at the very onset was my ballooning debt. Um, I got, I got really in deep on that shop because I, I was obsessed with the idea of it. And, yeah. uh, and that, that leads to the like divorcing all reason sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went and I overbuilt the shop. I overspent, I was in debt up to my eyeballs. And the night before we opened, I thought for sure we were going to go bankrupt. I thought I'd lost my mind. Nobody believed in barbershop at that point. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people were looking at the prices that we were looking at charging or twice what everyone else in our town was charging, like double. Yeah. Which, which is still reasonable people, prices, aren't they? I mean, you're not. But now, now it's reasonable price, right? But, but yeah. at that point, 2010, charging $35 for a men's haircut was mental. Yeah. You know, in a barber shop, right? Yeah. I mean, that was where people went for a $12 haircut. Yeah, and sure. so when we did this, it, it, you know, we had people walking in and looking at the price board and scratching their head and being like, good luck with that. And, uh, you know, it, it really did take a minute. But I, I remember the very first day that the landlord of the building was very awesome family. We're really lucky to have them. Um, they believed in it. They believed in the project. The very first day, um, my landlord and all the men in his family showed up for a haircut and they're an Indian Fantastic. family. There's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, me, yeah. And, me and one other barber working that day. And that was all I could find. Like trying to yeah. convince people of this thing when no one else saw it was so hard. Um, mm -hmm. When we're building it out, trying to get staff and they're like, you're not going to do women's hair. I'm like, no, this is just for men. They're like, are you crazy? Like, no, this is going to work. And, even the guy I bought my chair from, the guy who's now our lead barber, his name's Paul. I bought one of my first barber chairs from him. He had heard that I was talking about opening a barber shop, and he reached out to me. He worked at another shop in town. He's like, hey, so, you know, uh, I've got a chair I hear you looking at. It's like, great, yeah, I'll come. And I, I met him, and I must have mm -hmm. talked to him for like 45 minutes about the chair and what I wanted to do, and I was all really excited about it. And he was just kind of looking at me like, uh-huh, oh, yeah. Okay. I said, Hey man, I, and I don't like to do this. I never like to poach, but like, if you are ever looking for a place to work, man, come, come look me up. I really like your vibe. And he's like, yeah, thanks. I think I'm good. <laughs> like, just totally crazy. Just rigged me off. He totally thought I was nuts. And yeah. he was a barber and he even thought I was crazy. He's like, yeah. guys will never do this. And yeah. I was like, okay, but I think they will. And 
the funny thing is about a week before we opened, I had no barbers that had signed up. I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I was going to work there, but I had six chairs to fill up and and I couldn't carry it on my own. And a week before uh, we opened, I hear this knock on the front door and he comes in and he looks around and he goes, I can't fucking believe it. (laughs) Like, I can't believe you've done this. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to take a shot at it. He's like, so, um, is that job offer still on the table? (laughs) And, and he's our first guy. And then we just kind of slowly started building piece by piece by piece. And it was all little step at a time. It didn't really start taking off, um, like taking off, like, wow, boom. Probably, probably for about six, eight months in, um, it had been really slow simmer and build. And then suddenly somebody wrote an article about it. Um, and then another one and another one, and then the men's thing. And, it was always framed in this idea of men's grooming is back. You know, the idea of men taking care of themselves is back and and people, the social pressure for guys all of a sudden to take better care of themselves that the, you know, the availability of these things. And next thing you know, it just skyrocketed. And we were mentioned in like tons and tons of mainstream publications, men's health, GQ details, magazine, all these, all these Mm. big publications were writing articles about me and about the shop and, uh, and things just kind of exploded from there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, you're a great spokesperson for the brand. As I say, you're the, the complete package. You know, uh, right place, right time, and every bit of skill and understanding of what it took to make it happen. Um, and, and you've done it, and, and you're killing it, and I, I totally take my hat off to you. What, what did you do with, uh, with Lab at that time? So did you still have the, the Lab salon open, or did you jettison that before that point? I didn't jettison it before that, but it had definitely taken a back seat. And, yeah. uh, and at that point I had a manager in place. Um, and, and the one thing that I think is interesting about uh, running a hair salon is the longer you've done it, the tougher you get, mm. you know what I mean? Like you become tough, um, you resilient, I guess is a better word, not tough. Cause it's very close up, but you become more resilient. Yeah. And when yeah. you, when you hand the reins over to somebody that hasn't built up that resiliency, it can be really hard because um, a lot of emotions and a lot of things are taken personally. And a lot of things are really tough about running a shop. And especially in today's market, it's just gotten progressively tougher and tougher. And that's, that's, if that's what you signed up for and that's what you have and you're like, okay, yeah, I can do this. You're good. But it just, it just got to the point where running both shops when one was clearly not my passion, one was clearly not what I wanted to do anymore. Mm. Um, And so I ended up uh, selling it to one of the people who had, uh, who had actually worked for me previously. And the interesting thing is that she had gone out on her own. And, um, and I'm sure a lot of people out there, if there's any salon owners listening, every one of us has had uh, a coup. Every one of us has had um, a, a person leave and then take staff with them. Uh, every one of us has had uh, a bad exchange uh, with an ex-employee. And what's really funny about that is... Um, this was a, a great experience for me because I, uh, I I had a couple of times where that would happen. And then one time it particularly kind of hurt because I felt very um, warm to this person. I was uh, very friendly with them. And, and it just felt like, you know, a friend had kind of stabbed you uh, just a little bit, even though that's not what they are trying to do. They're just doing sure. the same thing that you did before you started mm-hmm. your salon. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I had a rule where I said, look, j- whatever happens, um, you know, just try not to make a big deal about it on the floor because it's bad for morale please don't take anyone with you. And, uh, and if you give me the details of your new establishment or where you're going to go, I will tell everyone before I offer anything else, I will tell them right away. Here's where you're available. You can go see her here if you'd like. Um, 
And that's the deal we make. And I've, I've rarely had people be able to uphold that. All they have to do is not make a big deal of it, not try and take people yeah. and don't, yeah. you know what I mean? And that's, and yeah. that's the thing. And they almost never can because they're too excited. But, but in this case, um, she blew up terrifically. Did, uh, it was really bad uh, partings to the point where I had to say, okay, well, I'm sorry, you can't be in the shop anymore because you, mm. you can't be handing out business cards, trying to take team and talking trash about my shop now because you've worked here for you know five years. You can't just suddenly flip the switch like that. So I said goodbye. Um, about a year and a half later, I got a phone call and it was her and I hadn't talked to her since. And she phoned up to apologize because her salon that she now owned just had somebody do the exact same thing. And she was a shallow wreck of a human being yeah. and didn't really realize how I could just constantly deal with those things. Yeah. So that's yeah. why I say it. you become resilient over time. But we started this conversation up and I said, you know, what? I appreciate your apology. Thanks very much. And she, in fact, ended up buying my salon from me. She, mm -hmm. she didn't like the location she had picked. She really preferred being there. I was ready to sell. And so she ended up buying the salon. And I, I'm really glad that we still have that friendship intact, even though there's a, some rough years there. But you just never know what's going to happen with those people. I always try and keep an open heart and an open idea of like, um, you know, people do dumb things when they're excited. I have mm -hmm. sure done dumb things in my life. And so, so you just never know what's going to happen down the road. But she ended up taking it over and, uh, and it was, yeah, it was great. And I was able to cut those ties and run free. Um, yeah, it's 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 in interesting that that lesson that you allude to that you know every salon owner out there, you know when they open they they're never thinking about the day that people are going to leave and and how they're going to leave and well, this, it's a, this it's a bit of a baptism book. of fire, isn't it? This is what happens. I, may I honestly learned a lot of this stuff from your books? Like the team book is great. <laughs> like there's a lot of things in there that really that really gave me tools to deal with that yeah. stuff. You know what well, I mean? And, and that's how I learned it too, the hard way. Oh. You know, you, 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 when you employ people, you have to expect the fact that they are going to leave one day because that's did. what happens. Yeah. And you did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of them, some of them one day might be 10 years away or, or, you know, if you're really lucky, it might be 15 or 20 years away, yeah. but, but they're all going to leave one day. And, and really all you can ask is that, that they hopefully do it in the right way and some will and some won't. And when they don't, it's a test of, of your character as to how you can move on from that and how you can learn from it. And, you know, like you, I mean, I, uh, when, when I had my salons, I mean, there'd be people that would leave and, and some of them would do it well, you know, properly, professionally. Some of them wouldn't, some of them we'd have big fallouts with, etc. But interestingly enough, over the years, and I mean years, mm. everyone that I sort of had some sort of falling out with in brackets, everyone, maybe bar one, <laughs> have, have sort of, you know, reached out in some way and offered the olive branch and, and basically sort of said what that young lady said to you, you yeah. know, and, and that's really cool that, that it happens like that. So, uh, you know, um, we all move forward from that. Um, now, interestingly what, enough, it taught me something about, uh, about expansion, though. Um, so oh, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, perfect. I'm not sure if we we're going to roll into that, but it taught me something about expansion because um, we we had our first shop was open for six years before we expanded into another shop. Yeah. That's a long time to set up. It didn't seem that long. No, okay. but it was long. We we yeah. we had the interesting thing about it is that we had tons of offers. We had offers for reality television shows. We had uh, you know offers for uh, people wanting to come in and franchise. Like just about every month, I'd be dealing with a request for something. Yeah, and and. I, I would always run it up the flagpole with our team. Um, very fortunately, the people we had uh, working for me had incredible integrity. And mm -hmm. all of them really um, thought the place was special and thought we were doing something really important. 
uh, in, in like globally, not just just not just for Victoria, but like we're we're really leading the way in, in, in some respects. And we wanted to do that with as much integrity as we could muster. So we always said no to those things. We never let somebody make it cheaper or cheapen the experience or try to make a carbon copy or something like that. We always turn that down. And um, and then we realized that we were so, so busy. And uh, and at night was the busiest time. And we were turning people away like crazy between the hours of about five and seven or eight when we closed. And uh, everyone would be coming in after work. And even if you're sitting in the shop waiting for a walk-in spot, you know, you'd be there two, three hours. Mm. And so people don't leave happy, no matter how good the haircut is after they've been waiting for three hours or two hours. So we created a, a secondary thing. I partnered up with a friend of mine who has always been asking me to do something with. We opened a bar that had a barbershop in the back of it. And it's this little cool bar. It's called St. Frank's, which is actually named after my other grandfather, not the one that I was talking about with Victory, but called it St. Frank's. And uh, and it's this little fun, good times bar that people come hang out in. And there's a little barbershop in the back that only takes walk-ins. And it's mm-hmm. open at five o'clock and opens at five o'clock and opens till 10. And it's only walk-ins and it is lined up every single night. And it's great because people don't mind sitting two hours in a bar. In fact, when people show up too early and they're the first one, they're almost disappointed because they want to have have a drink and they're going, Hey, look, I got time for a drink. They're like, mate, you got time for five. And they're happy as clams. They're, they're, they're having a great time. And that, that turned out to be a genius idea because instead of trying to supply people with uh, magazines or or beverages or anything that will make them comfortable for two and a half hours, they're Mm. buying that stuff from me, you know, and and they're, so you own the bar as well. Yeah, they're experienced right, okay. and they're crafting for themselves, yeah. you know, and, and it's and they're not they're walking in for a $30 haircut with a $100 bill out the door, you know, and mm. it, it was but they're having a smile on their face. They're having the time of their life and they love it. They're having a great time. Yeah. And they're happy to go. And so for me, it, it was that was a learning experience. And how do you create value? Not just how do you um, not how do you just keep adding value added services? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But how do you actually create value? Because I think a lot of value added services are a distraction. They're meant to be a distraction from something that they don't enjoy instead Mm -hmm. of creating an environment or creating an experience that they do enjoy that they will pay for. Yeah. Right. Value add to me always seems to be like, well, this is the one thing we do that someone else, you know, doesn't do, or this is what we do to fill the time when you're bored. Right. And so for us, we managed to flip that idea and go like, well, this isn't a value added service, but it's just an inv- an adventure or an, sorry, a, a, an experience that holds more value for them. Yeah. And so when we started doing that. That was kind of fun. And uh, that was a couple of years. And then it had a fire. Long story. Well, we, that's another podcast. And then we reopened again and it's back up and going. But during that period, we decided two things. We were like, oh, and maybe we'll try another shop. Somebody had opened a shop over here, much like I was in, in Vancouver, um, where I am now. Um, much like we were talking earlier about people replicating things without really knowing the soul of them or understanding them. Uh, somebody had done that over here and they, they lasted about a year and a half before they kind of threw the towel in and they reached out to us said hey um we tried to copy your shop and it doesn't really work for us um do you want to buy it so we came over and had a look and at this point we were riding high all these you know all this press and everything was going good and we were thinking about starting a brand and all this you know i'd been working on the brand for actually a number of years before we launched but it it turned into this thing where we bought it with this uh, unbelievable amount of avarice uh just this 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 egotistical this would be so cool. It's on, it's in a big giant city. And now we're really making a flagship for like a bigger city and we're really growing. We're really become this thing, man. That was fucking stupid. <laughs> Cause, cause 
we just got so full of ourselves and so much head esteem without really thinking about um, a, we don't know anybody in this town. Not really. Um, mm. We don't have the same support network. B um, we're going into a location with the same model of business with the business that just failed at it. That mm. was not smart. Um, yeah. No matter how good it looked, there was a business doing almost the same thing and couldn't make a go of it. And we were just thinking, Oh, it's just cause it doesn't have our brand cachet and our name and all that stuff. Yeah. Nonsense. Yeah. Like, that was really our ego getting in our way. And I got to tell you, those, those were some of the hardest years, those first couple of years of running that shop. We've had it for four now, and the first three were an extraordinary struggle. We had staffing mm. issues. We had um, overhead issues. We had, we had just about everything you can imagine. And, um, and so now it, it really came to the point where we had put manager after manager after manager in, in that shop trying to turn it around, and it never did, and it never got the direction we wanted it to go. And until we sat and realized that maybe the problem is that a manager is meant to keep something operating that exists as it is rather than somebody that's meant to grow a business. And so for us, we decided that, okay, it was time for me to move. I moved over here to Vancouver uh, and I am now the anchor at that shop. Um, what's interesting. And I mean, this is a, this is of course we're jumping over huge heaping swaths of things here, but, but what happened um, in between here and there is I wasn't able to be in the shop because I was on the road so much teaching yeah. with our brand with all the shows and everything like that. Last year I was on, on, on 150 flights, um, you know, in a year, which is a new record for me, but uh, mm. you know, it's an auspicious record to hold because it was a, it was a real grind. And then COVID came and hit and shut everything down. And when we were going to reopen our shop here in Vancouver, our manager decided he was, he had had enough and he was leaving. Um, I wasn't in the shop up to that point as far as operator or as far as, you know, working managing. And, and so it really left me with no other option, but um, it's been the best thing that I could have asked for, for everything, for my traveling career, for my, um, my brand, even though it is taking my time away a lot, um, it is investing it in something that I really see as valuable, not just for the people in my chair, but for myself. It's great for my soul. It's great for the shop. It's, it honestly is bringing everything right back to the grassroots of why I started being a barber. Um, yeah. It was really service. It was really about how do we create this thing for men? How do we create this pride and dignity and grooming? How do we make this experience? And all of the things I've been teaching on the road, I mean, you know, it, as you and I know, the, the, you know, we, you spend so much time teaching these theories and ideas, but the longer it's been since you've actually applied those things, the harder it is to really like kind of uh, the rubber hit the road, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, and the harder it is to really know for sure that those work. And so um, this is basically me now coming back full circle to like the really base part. Um, even though we have four shops and a brand and that sells all over the world. Yeah. I am now, a I am now somebody's local barber. Mm. Right. And well, I haven't that, done that in a long time. Yeah. So, so that's what I wanted to ask you. You've now got four stores yeah, yeah? yeah. Uh, and they're all in the same area. Like, so one of them is part. Vancouver uh, yeah. and then the other three are on Vancouver Island, which is right. just off the coast. Yeah. Okay. How many staff in total? About 32. Okay. So, so what's the key to successful expansion? Oh, um, <laughs> you're going to have to ask me that in a couple of years when I feel successful. Okay. I, um, you know what it is? It's, it's, um, there's a, a couple pieces of advice I can give. Number one um, is that you are going to, you are going to upset the, the delicate balance of culture that you have by opening a second yeah. shop. 
you are going to. No matter how much you try not to, it is going to happen. Your first shop is going to struggle as a result. Your, your shop that you rely on. So make sure that both of them are carrying their weight. Because if you think you're going to be able to rely on your first shop to carry the weight for the second shop, there's a good chance that that's not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, it's almost like a sibling syndrome that happens, you know, where the first one gets jealous or the second one. And, and trying to keep that balance is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so make sure you're rock, rock solid before you decide to do that. And you have a solid culture, not just cool branding and a cool name. Was it the culture that, that didn't... Uh, to, to the salon that you're now working in, the one that wasn't working for three years, was yeah. it? Was the biggest thing that was wrong with that that the culture didn't transport? You know, yes. the graphic design can, the logo yeah. can, the products totally. on the shelf can, yeah. the chairs can, but if the culture's wrong, it just doesn't work, does it? Well, the culture is your people, man. It is like yeah. no matter what. Like I've, I can make a shop look incredibly cool. I've, I've done a lot of them now, and they're great, but mm. it doesn't matter. You know, like people walk in and go, oh, that's cool. And then that part is over. As soon as you yeah. get the that's cool or I like the look of this shop, you know, that's mm-hmm. great. And it does a little bit of the back work. But but your culture is your people. We had a, a massive challenge trying to trying to translate the culture of our original shop over here because it was a very different culture between the cities. Even it's a very different vibe. It's a big city, busy, yeah. hectic pretentious vibe uh, that we didn't have in our smaller community that we started, right? Where mm-hmm. everybody was cheering for us and everybody was excited. Um, you know, in this market, everybody is an actor or, or actress or somebody important or whatever. And, and everyone wants to talk about how important they are, but they don't really care about anyone else. And they kind of ignore everything else yeah, around yeah. them. They're very self-focused. So that made it really hard. And, and one of the things that I learned uh, from this shop is be quick to fire, mm-hmm. be quick to fire people. I, um, and it's not because it's mean, Okay. It's not mean to fire people. Um, one of the things is I, we did a great amount of harm to ourselves by giving people the benefit of the doubt and trying to work with people that we couldn't work with that didn't see our vision that absolutely would try and hamstring us and be their own thing and talk crap, you know, talk crap about us and create a poisonous culture. Um, we were try we try to, um, rehabilitate people. You know what I mean? Foolishly. That's not the business we're in. I'm not in the business of business rehabilitation or personal rehabilitation, right? I'm, I'm in the business of barbering. I'm in the business of creating uh, an experience for men that infuses them with pride and dignity, not, uh, you know, trying to rehabilitate massive egos. So we decided, okay, forget it. Um, by the time we had come to that realization, we were like two and a half years deep. And it came down to one staff meeting where we came in, um, you know, flew over for the day, uh, you know, trying to spend time with everybody. And, and I'd be doing that regularly flying in and out. And we had a staff meeting. And it just basically sat down where we were really trying to give a positive, like, okay, guys, here, you know, we can do this. And here's the thing. And here's what we need to do. And here's how we're going to support you. What do you need from us? Give us a and holy crap, like the way that the entire team was suddenly looking at us, talking to us and behaving as um, the, the, the level of entitlement had suddenly shot through the roof. We're, we ask people to wear aprons. It's part of our, our culture. It's part of our brand. Yeah. And, um, and we had people just flat up refusing to wear an apron. And that's the most low impact, um, yeah, yeah. you know, wardrobe you can ask for people. You can wear anything you want as long as you wear the yeah. apron. You know, yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, I, I, I sometimes get salon owners that will say stuff to me, uh, uh, like they'll say something to me like, what do you do with staff members that won't talk about retail? Mm. And I just look at them and I say, well, let me put it this way to you. If you got a job at Starbucks and you said, I'm not going to wear the apron, what would they do? They just <laughs> point to the door. 
and say, see you later. It's all, you know, you're not, you're not a fit. Goodbye. Well, and this is it, essentially like what we have to do. Yeah, you've got to. You, you, it, it's your culture. It's your brand. And, and, and you, you nailed it. I was just happy to, to let you run with all that because everything you're talking about is magic. And yeah. uh, so much wisdom in there, so many lessons in there that people need to hear. I mean, yeah. I always say to people that it is easier to employ people that already share your values then try and change the values of the people that you've got. And it sounds to me like, you know, your, that, that third store you opened, uh, yeah. that it, it was full of a whole bunch of egomaniacs with out of control sense of entitlement or, or, or totally different values as to what the ethos of you yeah. and your brand are all about. And it was never going to work. So I agree with everything you said. There's a lot of things to look into there too, as far as like what created that, because I I think one of the things that happened in barbering and that happened in hairdressing certainly was just this massive ego spike on the back of social media, right? All of a sudden people started feeling like they were rock stars. They were, they were celebrities of some type, you know what I mean? And, Mm -hmm. and suddenly barbers were, were looked at with a a lot more um, respect, I think than, than previous, you know, I think, I, I think the hair industry looked at them with more respect. But that came with a, an ugly headed monster that uh, that turned barbers into prima donnas a lot. And, you know, while I'm on Instagram all day and I've been posting all day, I don't know why clients aren't coming in the door or, mm-hmm. you know, all these or they just felt like they were they were the show. You know what I mean? Well, they all come for me. I'm the show. You know, you got to keep me happy. Um, OK, <laughs> like barbers behind the chair are the people with the least investment in the shop. They haven't paid for the shop. They don't mm. actively get employed by the shop, really. I mean, they're, they're working in the shop. The, the clients are coming, they're paying money. Uh, you know what I mean? So the person in the shop with the least amount of actual investment in that shop is, is the barber. And so it, they, it's kind of a funny thing because they, they would always kind of flip this idea. And it really ultimately came down to one day we just said goodbye to everybody. We said goodbye mm. to the whole staff. And that was um, one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about, which is about fear fear of being left standing holding the bag Mm. okay um i want to break this down for anybody that owns a shop right now no matter what it appears like to you you are the only one holding the bag always Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter like you get afraid that all of a sudden oh well then people are going to leave and oh i'm not going to have anyone to work and you are always the one holding the bag no matter what because people will leave on a long enough timeline all of them will um, all it really is, is a matter of we're afraid of what's on the other side of that. And that's what holds us back and allows us to be treated poorly and it allows people to be, become abusive or those things. I, I want to tell you that that moment where we decided that this is our shop and we're taking it back was the first moment it felt like my shop. And the first moment that we started on the right path to where we are now, which is yep. fantastic. I have a team right Hallelujah. now that I absolutely adore. And you know what? If I had just kept holding on and holding on and holding on, that shop would have gone bankrupt and I would have been happy to let it go. Mm-hmm. instead of returning to a place that I think it needed to be. You are the only one holding the bag and the only one steering the ship, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what you need to do. And, um, and that, it really worked out well for us because our brand now is, you know, in Vancouver, our reputation has grown uh, extraordinarily. And it, that reputation is what's carried us through COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, coming back to a very different demographic, coming back to a very different period, coming back to a new world for barbering. Um, that reputation that we've been able to trade on now has, has really insulated us as a business and that people were waiting for us to open. People were excited for us to open They're, They want to be you know, back in their community. You know what I mean? Yeah. They want that normalcy. And that, that's been a big wild thing. Trying to reinvent post COVID has been a big mm. one. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, let's switch gears a minute and and talk about products. Um, I mean, I I I have seen your product sort of evolve over time, both the wetline products, mm-hmm. right from the very beginning. I saw that thing, which I, I don't know who else calls it a dot bag. Yeah, uh, I know you call it a dot bag in Canada. I don't know if the Americans call it that. Australians or British certainly don't. It would be called a a toiletries bag or something. But sure, sure. I remember the first. And it was the storytelling behind it. The the mm-hmm. the first product that was this 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 dot bag toiletries bag that you had yeah. manufactured, mm-hmm. and the stories that were behind it were just that the marketing was just genius. Um, we're going to run out of time, and I've got so much I want to talk to you about. So I'm going to get you yeah. back another time, whether you like okay. it or not. But okay. you know, let's talk about your products and how they've evolved and the the essence behind it. Because it's not just just like you said with a shop about you can get the decor right and put some chairs in there and and think it's going to hum. Uh, that lasts about five seconds. You you it's got to have some essence. It's got to have integrity. It's got to have some uh, some authenticity about it. And everything you touch seems to have that, okay, from the outside looking in. Like everyone, you have hurdles, but from the outside looking in, you've done some, some real genius product development. Um, so, so talk to us on that. I think the thing about it is, is that um, those things that you talk about, integrity and, and, and authenticity, we're trying to imbibe uh, attributes of people into products, right? Into, into inert things that, that are not, you know, they don't have a personality of their own. They're just a, a, a thing. You know what I mean? And, and, but we as people like to give things personality because it allows us to relate to them. Understand yeah. that branding is just a well-told story. That's all it is. It's just a well-told story. We communicate through stories all the time. Mm-hmm. Connecting emotionally to something requires a story. It requires understanding of the story. You know what I mean? If you want it to feel a certain way, you have to accurately explain to people where it came from. Um, if you want people to have any kind of personality attached to your brand or your products, you need to be a strong communicator. You need to be able to visually and uh, verbally communicate the story uh, of the brand of the products and why they exist. Too many people these days fall into the trap of thinking that they have a brand when all they have is a logo. Yeah. All they have is a logo and stickers on a product that anyone else could have because they buy it from a white label thing, put their sticker on it, throw it up on their barbershop, check out my brand. It's not a brand. Mm-hmm. A brand is a well-told story and you don't have a story there. You just have a sticker and a logo. So here's the thing I find for us, it was really important for me to, because I had a lot of experience working in the, in the, the product field uh, with different companies, how we met, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, I, I just felt like I was kind of uh, qualified, I guess, to, to look at what do I need? What do I need to create? What, what, what stuff am I missing? What are my favorite things to work with? Um, you know, what do I feel like the direction hair is going? You have to be so incredibly confident to do that uh, and start from scratch. I worked with a chemist. I asked them for samples of this, this, and this. There's my three products. Here's a handshake, basically, are these three products. Because before that, we had our dot bag. We had, uh, you know, some beard oil, which I was making myself, which I found in an old, an old like, kind of um, toiletries book. Um not toiletries, but like it was, it was like antiquated cosmetic kind of idea, yeah, you know, it was yeah. like, so I, I had a, I had some of that stuff and, and a few other things, but this is my chance to do a real wet line. So I went to a, a um, manufacturer, they sent me some samples. They were completely awful. All of them, every one of them. I was like, this is not at all what I asked for. And I mm-hmm. thought, okay, well, I'm going to have to find somebody else. Cause these guys don't get me. And they said, Oh, give us another chance. Let's give us some feedback and then we'll get back to you. And I said, okay, I'll give you one more shot. Here's the problem with all three of these products. And the ones that this, sent me back, this was a, 
local manufacturer, Canada. In, in no, no, no. I actually, actually, I had been referred to somebody uh, by a friend of mine. Um, they couldn't be further away from me. This was somebody who was like okay. down in Florida. And, okay. um, and in Canada, I hadn't found anybody that I could work with that I, that I thought mm-hmm. really got what I was trying to do. This was the first person I had a phone call with that I felt kind of could maybe go the distance with it. Mm-hmm. So we created these three products and the first round sucked. The second round was much better. And so I just kept working with them and working with them. Um, one of my favorite products is one called super dry. And it was the one that I was most excited about because I, it didn't exist. I didn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't like, here's a product that it's kind of like, it was like, okay, I got nothing that I can compare this to, but here's what I need it to do. And they created it. It took 14 versions for me to be like, this is it. This is the, this is the product that was in my head. This was my vision. And said, so, that's great. You're going to need to order 20,000 of these. Yeah. I was like, wow. And how much is that going to cost me? Oh, it's going to be like a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, fuck. And so it, it's the thing about it is, is that when you're talking, like everybody is an armchair quarterback in the bro, in the products world. Everybody's like, mm. you know what you need, you know what you should have. Mm. It takes sometimes up to two and a half to three years to get a product to market mm. if you want to do it right. Mm. Right. And in that case, you have to be so goddamn confident about what you think is going to be on trend, what you think is going to be absolutely necessary in the product world two to three years from now. Uh, and you have to you have to put all your money where your mouth is on that one. You know what I mean? Because it's all up front. You're buying the stuff all up front. Yeah. You know, you're not sitting there going, well, can I pay you as we sell it? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Like, hey, all the money. And so we did that. And um, so it really was like an exercise in confidence. You know what I mean? And going, look, I was offered a bunch of jobs from other people. I didn't believe in their products. I didn't want to be a spokesperson for them. I, I knew I had to do it for myself. And mm-hmm. we invested every penny I had. And four years now uh, that we're into this, almost four years now, uh, we have about a thousand stockists, which is people that carry our products, barbershops. We were trying to support them during COVID, which is kind of crazy. But, but the thing is, that it's never made me money. In fact, it's, it's never turned up like, uh, it's not paying me cash. It's I, I, my wealth has not increased. It, it, the, the size of the brand has grown extraordinarily from those first three products, mm-hmm. but it's never paid me a dime and I'm four wow. years deep on it. Well, yeah. it's just because it all goes back into growth and, and managing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, volumes and, and trying to get everything. It's a million moving parts. And all of the part that looks cool about it is, is this is 10% of what it is to own a brand. Yeah, everyone um, thinks that the product route is is easy. And as you say, when they turn around and say minimum quantities, yeah, you know, 10, 15, 20,000, it's it's big money you've got tied up there. So yeah, so, so how many how many products in the range now? We grew from uh three on our wet line, we now have uh eleven. 11 products. Uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to grow to be big. Um, I think a lot of brands fall into that trap of trying to grow uh, and put new products out to be relevant or to be, um, you know, exciting new, new, exciting products is how they drive sales kind of thing. But eventually you become a monster that needs to be fed um, and you outgrow your, your ability to sit on uh, a lot of people's shelves. You know, there, there, I think there's a sweet spot for a product line, you know and I mean? I think it's about 12 mm-hmm. products is, is ideal. Um, and, and I think, you know, more than that, less than that starts to get kind of confusing for people. So I, I never meant for it to be big and huge. It, it's taken off. Um, we're actually, we were looking at getting it into the UK last year and we decided, um, before we started launching out in all directions, let's make sure we're doing what we're doing extraordinarily well before mm-hmm. we start doing other places. I designed a line that was meant to outlive the trend of barbering, not to cash in on it. 
you know, I, I wanted something to be on the other side of the barber boom and be relevant and be, you know, needed. But more importantly, I wanted to, I wanted to use it as a tool to create a community and to create education for barbers. You know, yeah. um, every product line I had worked for before that had always come to one heartbreaking moment where mm. somebody in a suit had looked at me and said, that's great, Maddie, but we're a product company, not an education company. And I wanted to be both. Yeah. You know, I yeah. wanted to be yeah, you, you just touched on something that I want to finish up with sure. uh, or have to finish up with, unfortunately, and, and that is that you wanted it to be more than a trend. Um, mm-hmm. Barbering has boomed. We've had 10 years where, I mean, it's sort of it's gone full circle for me because at the beginning of my career, I started hairdressing in 1978. It was a transition of barbershops closing all over the world in the 60s and 70s and, you know, the, the unisex salon opening. And mm-hmm. uh and now in the, you know, the, the, uh, the last 10 years, we've seen that transition happen completely the opposite way. Sometimes people say that to me. They say, is it just a trend or will it go back to what it was? What are your thoughts about that? I mean, personally, I don't think it will go back to what it was. Uh, but the, the, the boom has um, the gold rush days are over, so to speak. So, so yeah. what, what are your thoughts about that? I think you're right. Uh, I think it's both. I think it's both. I think it is a trend and I think it is a movement at the same time. I think the trend fueled the movement, but I don't think the movement is going to disappear. I think that we reestablished something. It was more of a correction. We reestablished something that did exist and was wiped out because of a trend. And and so I think that the the gold rush days are over. It's really difficult to stand out in this market now. Uh, It was easy when there was five people on the planet doing this. Uh, It Mm. was really easy for all of us to be stand out. Now there's, you know, five million and yeah. it's, it's a lot of white noise in this industry now. And so to do something extraordinary, um, it takes timing, right? And I mean, we were just lucky to be at the forefront at the right time with the right skill set, willing to do the work. And that's mm. all you can ever ask for to be successful in anything is the right timing, the right skill set, and be willing to do the work. Well, Maddie, you know, you have absolute, that's the perfect place to wrap this up. Uh, there are so many areas I wanted to dig in with you. Uh, one of them is yeah. social media, and, and that is going to be a let's do it again job because that is Absolutely. so big. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got so much to offer, not just barbers, but um, lots of different areas of this industry. And every time I hear you talk, um, you know, I, I hear a different side of you. I've, he- I've heard you talk in depth on someone else's podcast. I think it might have been Eric's. Um, and you were talking about the sort of the history of hairdressing and your Mm. depth of knowledge on that and your fascination with it and your nerdiness to make it cool is just awesome. I I, I love hearing you. I mean, people will go, where's Anthony on this podcast? He hasn't said much. It's because I'm really happy to hear what you've got to say. And uh, I I know that you've got a, a great message. I know that a lot of people would have been listening to this and been very, very inspired, um, about what you've had to say. So thank you for that. And, and Thank you for your honesty, you know, because, um, I mean, I know you, but I don't know you that well to have had that insight into all those ups and downs and disappointments and mountains that you've climbed. I mean, I've assumed that they're there because they're always there. It's, it's, sure. it's no one, you know, has, has, has an easy ride up the hill, so to speak. So, so thank you for sharing that honesty with people. And I think it's important to share those things because I, I know I, it's easy to look at Instagram and see everyone's highlight reel and feel like, well, they don't have to deal with the things that I do or I, they don't know what it's like to be me. Yeah. And yet we do, you know, everybody's yeah, damn wrong. It. I think yeah. it's mostly important to share those things just so that people don't feel alone in yeah. their struggle. You know, we've all been there, man. We really have. 
Yeah, exactly. Now, um, so wh- whereabouts can people check you out? Where can they find you on Instagram? You can follow me personally at Maddie Conrad. It's just my name, M-A-T-T-Y-C-O-N-R-A-D. But you can also follow me uh, on other Victory Brand products, or you can follow my podcast, which is at whiskey underscore tango underscore foxtrot underscore podcast. Uh, Maddie Conrad, have you got anything, any final words that you'd like to say to, uh, to wrap up with? Well, if you don't invite me back to talk about that other stuff, I'll be really disappointed. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm, you're definitely on the list. Whether you like it or not, I'll hound you. No, no it's my back. pleasure. Man. Honestly, it's such a pleasure to connect with you, man. Uh, like You and I have always been kindred spirits. I really appreciate your friendship. You've been great to me over the years. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So uh, I'll put those links on the growmycelonbusiness.com website in the show notes for uh, for Maddie's uh, website and his social media platform. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast with Maddie Conrad and you've enjoyed it, then please do me a favor. Take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. There's a lot of uh, wisdom there. So uh, Maddie Conrad, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. That's my pleasure. Thanks again. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.